As a kid growing up in New York City in the 1950s, Robert Thurman was searching for an answer to one of life's harsh realities. Unhappy endings suck, and I wasn't really into tragedy. I, I didn't like it. I felt there must be a way of really understanding life. Since then, Robert Thurman has devoted his life to studying, teaching, and practicing Tibetan Buddhism. He's regarded as one of the leading scholars on the topic and recently retired from a long career as professor at Columbia University. Along the way, he's had five kids, including actress Uma Thurman, opened a cultural center called Tibet House with Richard Gere, and served as an advisor and friend to His Holiness the Dalai Lama. In 1965, the Dalai Lama ordained Robert as the first American Buddhist monk in the Tibetan tradition, even though Robert says the Dalai Lama avoids converting people to Buddhism. He's not trying to spread Buddhism as a religious thing where he would convert somebody away from Judaism or Christianity or Islam or Hinduism or whatever other religion. He just wants them to learn about their minds. But Buddhism as a religion where you adopt a creed and then you change your cultural setting and you drop out from what the Dalai Lama calls your grandmother's religion. Uh, he's not in favor of that. And he, he, he wants to help people where they are, you know, instead of sort of change them and make them into some kind of Tibetans or into Buddhists. And then finally I said, okay, don't worry, Your Holiness. You didn't, or Geshe-la did not convert me from Christianity to Buddhism. I talked more with Robert about his introduction to Buddhism and how he initially crossed paths with the Dalai Lama decades ago. He says losing an eye in a garage accident in the early 1960s sparked his Buddhist awakening. My first guru, what they call my root teacher, he told me I should always say when I mention it that I lost the one eye and gained a thousand. That's what he said. I should always <laughs> say. So I'm just following his thing. And um, that gave me, I would call it like a midlife crisis at 20. <laughs> and that was lucky, although it was agonizing, of course, and annoying and whatever. But it was really lucky because... I then decided that my sense of looking for something else, which was what Buddhism was representing to me already by then, you know, and I was sort of reading it, but then I would just go and have fun, you know. But looking for something else, that I should really look for something else, that life and death was a big thing, and that somebody in India did know, and I was going to find out on the trail of the Buddha, you know. So that was my luck, actually. Otherwise, I might have stuck with what I was with a kind of dilettante view of it. But I started in the 60s because of that accident, which was just turned out to be great fortune, in my view. And then, bam, I met the Tibetans, who had just come out starting in 59 with His Holiness, two and a half years earlier. And they were kind of get, getting their bearings there in India. And then I realized they really knew what it was. And somehow... I went nuts over the Tibetans, you know, probably previous life thing. But then, luckily, uh, I had to return to America for a family thing. And then I met in New Jersey a Mongolian lama who had been in Tibet. And I'll tell you, every time I see on the Karate Kid, that Mongolian lama was just like that teacher in the Karate <laughs> Kid. I'm, I'm not kidding. He was just like him. Is this a second life thing for the Karate Kid? I guess so. <laughs> well, you mentioned the holiness, the Dalai Lama. Uh, tell me about the first time you met him. What was that like? Well, what happened was after about a year and three quarters with my Mongolian teacher, I kept badgering him about ordaining me as a monk. 
I wanted robes, you know, shaved head. I wanted the whole trip, you know. And he said, no, you just live like it as a student. That's fine. But it's not in your future. It's not going to happen for you. So finally, he had to go to India and um, he had to go and report to the Dalai Lama and he had to help some Mongolian monks who were a little bit more impoverished even than the Tibetans in India. He said, well, I have to go to India. I'll take you with me. And I'll leave you with the Dalai Lama, and maybe he'll make you a monk, he said, since you're bugging me all the time. He said, this kid is a little crazy, American, very smart. He speaks Tibetan already. He wants to be a monk, which he shouldn't do, because he's not <laughs> going to be a monk in the future, I'm sure. But I'm just an old Mongolian. You're the Dalai Lama. You decide. But he did warn the Dalai Lama that, I was, that even though I really was sincere, that I wouldn't stay. So... Then the Dalai Lama looked me over, and then he took me under his wing for about a year and a half. And then he finally, toward the end of that time, he did make me a monk at my continuing insistence. And we became really good buddies. And he and I had this great dialogue, because I was only the second person, I think, in his life who was already fluent in Tibetan, uh, that he could discuss Freud and the American Constitution and democracy and nuclear physics and whatever. Although I wasn't that good at nuclear physics, but and psychology and things, you know. And he and he could discuss all these kind of things with me. And then I was really interested in in what he was also studying. But that was really nice. And when you came back to the United States, you did run into countercultural types like Allen Ginsberg oh, yeah. and Gary Snyder, who sure. embraced elements of yes. Buddhism. How did that go? Well, we, I, we got along really well, actually. And uh, they had been doing Japan stuff, and they didn't know much about Buddhism. Actually, they sort of met Tibetan stuff through me at, at that time, and they began to see something interesting about it connecting to Zen, but something different and deeper than Zen in a certain way, the learning element of Buddhism, which people, you know, took years, decades for people to begin to realize that it's not just meditating, there's something to learn. And there are Buddhist sciences, especially sciences of the mind, you know, which has been sort of my, my job all these years. That time, that was news to them, and they were beginning to kind of get into it. But at the same time, all my peers we're out with the civil rights movement, the anti-Vietnam War movement. Now we're talking 65, 66, 66, really. And so I would go out and meet them, and I was trying to help them. And then I went to see some old friends of mine from Cambridge who were in the psychedelic movement, trying to get them to meditate without acid, you know. So then the old Mongolian Lama said, well, if you want to go out and be activist with your friends, you can't do that as a monk living all over the place, you know, in this and that place. You have to stay in the monastery. If you stay in the monastery, you can't go out and do that. So what's your, which are you having to do? And, I, and eventually I realized I had this karmic thing of trying to change the world in a certain way, you know, and that being locked up in the monastery was not possible. Where does academia fit into all of this, Bob, because you're you're a very successful professor. Why academia? Academia is really great. After I quit being a monk, I resigned. Uh, so what can I do with my life, you know, be a waiter and whatever? And I did make a choice then with the help of a wonderful lady that I fell in love with. After, after having quit, she takes no responsibility for my quitting being a monk, which means celibate, you know. Only after I had resigned did I meet her. But with her help, uh, I decided to be a professor in the sort of Western monastery, let's call it, which is academia, 
rather than try to start a Dharma center or something, you know, like some other ex-monks have done in American Buddhism, because then I would sort of have a day job in a way. I wouldn't depend on having disciples and having to create kind of a Dharma center empire type of thing, you know. And I was a little very resistant to it, actually. I thought, oh, academia, I left there long ago. Who needs it? They just do this and that. But then I got to really see that there's something great about our liberal arts education system. It still has that co that element in it, you know, like an Emersonian element of follow your bliss, you know, find your values, you know. That, that, that aspect is good, and it fits actually with the Buddhist uh, exploration of the meaning of life and the meaning of what it's all about very well, you know. I just want to hear what your thoughts are uh, on the popularity of what we might call secular mindfulness meditation centers. A mindfulness with, yes. without... I love it. You love it. I didn't see that coming. Tell me about that. I love it. I love it. They can secularize as much as they want. It's like secularized yoga. People who go to do yoga instead of, you know, jogging. You know, it's not, of course, the whole thing of mindfulness because it doesn't address the ethical element. It's not a matter of addressing some sort of credo, religious credo. That's not necessary even in Buddhist mindfulness. It's Buddhist mindfulness just becoming more aware of how your mind works. And the fact that they don't do the full thing of mindfulness of actually beginning to edit your inner mental habits and things, they just kind of want you to become more aware of it and able to dissociate from the negative ones, which is what some people, and I, I like that they are criticizing that, by saying it's too superficial, I have a good friend who just wrote a nice book called McMindfulness, where he <laughs> criticizes them, um, and I like him. He's a good friend, and I'm glad he's criticizing them. But on the other hand, maybe he's being asking too much in the sense that any development in our population of people who decide they're not going to just depend on outside substances or experts— you know, they're not going to just ask for a Prozac or something, but they're going to learn to calm themselves down by becoming aware of what's going on in their mind. So, in other words, I love it that people are becoming more self-reliant in these ways without any involvement of Buddhism. This is one thing I want to say about Buddhism, because our culture, whenever we think we're talking about religion, it just gets too serious. We think it's really serious. Correct. And, oh, you know, and then Buddha, Buddhism gets distorted into that very much because first noble truth is the truth of suffering. That if you insist on being an idiot, you're going to have a, you're going to be unhappy. That's not really a genius insight. That's <laughs> obvious. You know, the key thing about Buddha, his discovery, is that you can be happy that you have a right to it, you have access to it. Happiness is the nature of life. The, the world likes us. Plants are producing oxygen for us to breathe if we don't like smother them all. You know, if you behave sensibly, the world lo loves you. And, and Buddha wants people to be happy. That's a key thing. And that was his discovery, and that's why he's popular. And Asian people are not people who don't like to be happy, and only Americans like to be happy. Asian people are very good at being happy. They had the Kama Sutra like 2,000 years ago, way before Shades of Grey. And uh, this is a key thing, and I think that hasn't been brought out enough. And in my retirement, I'm going to— I didn't, you know, it's a dangerous to promote happiness, actually, I think. <laughs> they think you're asking them all to get stoned or something, or you're competing with the Prozac manufacturers. And I would like to compete with them because, I don't, you know, real self-reliance, self-developed yogic happiness doesn't have bad side effects. 